This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Well, good morning, everyone at Jikoji and the, and the Zoom saga. And uh, welcome to the, our Sunday Dharma talk. Uh, this morning we have uh, a guest speaker, uh, David Shapiro, and David is a uh, uh, long-time practitioner in the Buddha way. Uh, he's, he's studied with uh, Chogun Trungpa Rinpoche and became an advanced student with Chogun Trungpa Rinpoche and Sadaka and uh, founded the Milwaukee Zen Center. Milwaukee, sorry, the Milwaukee Shambhala. Was it called the Shambhala Center? No, the Not Dharma that, Dattu. It was called the Dharma Dattu, wasn't it? Like that, yeah. Yeah. And uh, David, uh, when I was living in Milwaukee, he was also my physician. Is he and uh, his wife Jane are physicians, uh, and now you're focusing on uh, translating uh, uh, Tibetan texts, uh, Dharma, Dharma, Dharma texts. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we do both Dharma texts, and we also. Uh, primarily actually interested in uh, and translate uh, the, the uh, Epic of Gesar. Oh, that's right, Gesar, yeah. yeah. But we do do liturgical, Tibetan liturgical works also. Well, welcome, David. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Uh, anyway, may I start now? Yeah, please. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm thrilled to, to not be here, and um, this is um, um, actually a great honor uh, for me to, to be able to present um, a talk um, for Jokoji, and um, as, as Michael very generously said, I, I, I did become a student of Trungpa Rinpoche's uh, in 1973 and began what eventually became uh, the uh, Milwaukee Shambhala Center. And for the last 20 years or so, I've been uh, studying um, with other teachers and uh, more recently have, uh, in the last 10 or so years, uh, along with my wife, who's been doing it a lot longer, been translating some Tibetan texts. Um, anyway, that's, none of that really concerns what I'm going to be talking about today, uh, which is, uh, is good for the rest of you. Um, because the, the Epic of Gesar, which I could talk about for days on end, is, is 20 million words long. And, and it's, it's windy even for me. And so today uh, we're gonna talk about groundlessness. And I sort of subtitled this a cheerful talk for a cheerful time because I mean, we're all going through the groundlessness that we had not anticipated of, of this pandemic. If you think about the uh, three jewels, the, the refuge jewels of Buddhism, 
uh, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Uh, we still, of course, have the Buddha as an example and the Dharma as teachings, but for most of us, we're significantly cut off from most or if not uh, all of our compatriots of the Sangha, uh, the ones that, uh, at least as said in the text, uh, keep us sane and keep us on path. And, uh, and so I think this is a difficult time. I know it's a difficult time for me uh, personally and a difficult time for, uh, for many of us or all of us. And, and the groundlessness part, I promise this talk is not gonna be about the COVID pandemic because I suspect some of you have heard some things about that and probably have as much trouble as I do, not just reading about it from morning till night. But, but the part of the COVID part of the COVID pandemic is the fact that we really don't know, we don't know where it's gonna end. There's, there's, there's a lack of, of sort of bottom to it. Uh, which is very much like groundlessness. And um, so that's why I thought, well, Michael said, would you like to do a talk? And I said, well, I guess so. And then I said, well, what do you think I should talk about? And then he didn't respond for a couple of days. So I said, well, how about I talk about groundlessness? And he said, okay. And so uh, that's where we are. And so groundlessness is a very big topic. Um, you might say it covers a lot of ground. And you might say that uh, in terms of the Buddhist canon, probably more ink has been spilled on the notion of groundlessness and more air has been expended on the notion of groundlessness than, than nearly any other topic. And, um, and I have to say that um, um, talking about groundlessness to um, a collection of Zen practitioners and students is a little bit, I think, like taking coals to Newcastle or ice to the Inuit or any, any of those sort of metaphors, because you have a lot of experience and have spent a lot of time studying this particular topic. Um, but that doesn't mean that there might not be some other parts of it that we might explore. So what I decided to do was to break the talk into two parts. One is sort of the intellectual mental thing about groundlessness and sort of its historiography, if you will, uh, within uh, the Buddhist uh, canon and, um, and, and how, how we have all come to sort of appreciate it and, and know about it and how perhaps some of us think about it. And then I wanted to talk a little bit uh, about the experiential nature of groundlessness and how, how that comes about. We might say that groundlessness, the primordial groundlessness, and, and some of this, I have to admit, is kind of taken from the Tibetan tradition because that's the tradition I know the best. But the philosophical basis of, of the middle way or Madhyamaka and Yogacharyan philosophies um, that are the underpinning of Tibetan uh, Vajrayana Buddhism is really essentially the same as Zen. So I don't, I don't think we're, we're way off base here. And if we are, well, that's just how it goes. Anyway, um, the primordial nature of uh, the space between thoughts is felt to be the fundamental touch point of groundlessness in many traditions. And so we are taught that as part of, of 
meditation practice as we slow our minds down, uh, our thoughts come and we're able to observe uh, thoughts. And in one of our traditions, we say we observe where, where thoughts uh, come from and then where they dwell and where they um, go to. And, uh, and then as, as thoughts, as equanimity increases and we have a certain a steadiness in our practice, we see that there's actually some space, there's gaps between thoughts and that there's nothing that fills that gap. There's a, there's a moment of, of groundlessness there that is open to our experience really between every thought. Mostly we don't miss it any more than when you're watching uh, uh, well, back in the old days when you went to movies and you watch in the old, old days when you watch movies and there was like cameras and there was film. Remember film? And then the film would be like, there'd be a light bulb and the, and the, and the light would go through the film. And 24 times a second, a, uh, a new frame would come in and you watch the movie and you then you be at the movies probably all of you remember being at the movies, but some of you probably remember when there was actually film at the movies. And, and so the same way uh, thoughts are so continuous that the movie projection that we observe appears to be continuous to us. And, uh, and it takes, it takes uh, a fair amount of practice to see the space between those thoughts. And especially it takes a fair amount of practice to see uh, the groundless nature of, of that particular space. But that, in any case, is, is what we talk about when we talk about the fundamental uh, groundlessness that we all are capable of experiencing between each thought. And so uh, the intellectual part of that sort of um, comes from that because uh, as, as you are students and practitioners of Buddhism, you know that, or you've at least been told that, that you have no uh, ego, you have no soul, you have no Atman, you have just this sort of projection that you've been watching, a sort of movie that's been going on around you that's made up of the various facts of your past history um, and how your past history and your present composition, if you will, is mirrored in the people around you, your friends, your enemies, your lovers, your children, your grandchildren, your parents, all of them have versions of you that they, they mirror to you. And your experience is that you're, you're very real. You're, in fact, I think it'd be safe to say, the realest thing that... And, and, and though you've been told um, and have read again and again that you don't exist, that's, that's really not generally your experience. Your experience is one of existence. And so uh, the Buddhists came up with this idea of uh, non-existence or uh, lack of a soul or an Atman a very, very, uh, very long time ago. Um, and was one of the earliest teachings as recorded in the Pali Canon and became part of Theravada or Hinayana Buddhism. And um, so that's sort of the beginning of of the intellectual journey that I, I thought we could sort of take. Um, American playwright Edward Albee wrote a short play uh, called The Zoo Story. And uh, in The Zoo Story, there's one of my favorite lines. 
just two of my favorite lines, but the favorite line that I'm thinking of is sometimes you have to go a long way out of your way to come back uh, a short way correctly. And, um, and, and I was sort of like that one. So the long way we're gonna go is with, um, with Alexander the Great to the shores of the Indus River, which if you know any geography at all, it's a long way from Macedonia uh, through Turkey and Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan and most of Pakistan to get to the Indus River. And, um, and so that's, that's covering a lot of ground. So we're gonna cover that particular ground. And, and the reason this came up is that um, I was driving home from Seattle with my wife uh, not long ago, and we were listening uh, to a book, which we sometimes do. And it was a book we had both read called uh, A Gentleman in uh, Moscow uh, by Amor Tolls. It's a wonderful book about a count uh, who right or shortly after the Bolshevik Revolution is placed under a house arrest at a very fancy hotel in Moscow. And he's the gentleman and it's sort of all about him and, and, um, and uh, it's very interesting book. It has nothing at all to do with groundlessness that I'm aware of, though the ground of his existence does get pulled away very early in the book as he goes from being a very fancy count uh, uh, to being imprisoned. But anyway, his father, who was also a count, the Russian counts tend to have counts as children, um, had left him a number of books and among the books and the only book that he kept with him when he was imprisoned in this little uh, set of rooms in this hotel was, uh, was the Essays of Montaigne. And um, I remembered Montaigne from my, I don't know, days as a student. And I couldn't remember anything very much about him. So uh, driving along, we read a couple of essays about Montaigne. And uh, it turned out that, that uh, he was a uh, Piranist. Now Piranist, that's not a fish and it's not a fire person but it was one of the early schools of, uh, of skeptical thought, of Greek skepticism. And uh, he lived in around 300 BC, or BCE, as we Buddhists are happy to say. Anyway, he lived a long time ago and Alexander the Great, who uh, had already conquered uh, everything from Greece to India, um, towards the end of his life, he owned Alexander the Great, for those of us who are a little bit older, only lived 33 years and did all that. So anyway, so towards the end of his life, he took uh, Pyrrhus and a few of his other philosopher friends uh, to the Indus River. And um, there, it is said, they were uh, exposed to the early Buddhist teachings, particularly the three marks of existence. And um, three marks of existence being egolessness, the absence of a soul, um, the inescapability of suffering, and uh, the fact that uh, impermanence um, marks uh, all of our existences. And, uh, and they were kind of very impressed with that. And they also, it is said, um, came back with the, um, the concept of the four negations which is also early Buddhist teachings, and has to do with the difficulty of coming to a truth. 
um, which of course has to do with the fact that all things are composite. So a thing is not the other thing, and it's not not the other thing, and it's not both the thing and the other thing, and it's also not not the other thing and the other thing. Those are quickly the four negations. Anyway, so they went back to Greece, um, and Alexander the Great died, and uh, the school of um, academic skepticism was uh, brought into uh, the Platonic uh, writings. And uh, you're probably wondering where we're going with this. Well, we're gonna go back to India in just a moment. Anyway, um, there was a lot of commerce between uh, there and, uh, and Greece and India. And there's ongoing academic scholarship about who taught what to whom uh, regarding that. Uh, but uh, Nagarjuna comes along about 400 years later, 500 years later, and um, he, um, he wrote, of course, the text on the middle way of Nyamaka philosophy, and is also credited in myth uh, as uh, receiving the Prajnaparamita Sutra uh, from a bunch of sea serpents. Naga is actually a Sanskrit word for a snake or serpent. And so uh, Garjana then uh, actually um, took the four negations and, and made them into, or not made them into, but he promoted them um, as uh, basically our current formulation, uh, which we chant with some regularity as, uh, as some version of um, form is no other than emptiness, emptiness is no other than form, et cetera. And, and so from there, um, both uh, Tibetan Buddhism and Zen Buddhism um, began uh, its logical understanding of the absence of self or groundlessness. So, so that's, that's sort of the his, history of, of how groundlessness became such an important concept because without an absence of self, um, Buddhism has got very little sort of to add to the Hinduism that came before it. And so it, it's become sort of the primary, um, if you will, the, the primary um, philosophical basis. And the Four Negations, of course, form the primary logical basis of groundlessness. Anyway, so that's, that's the intellectual piece. And that was pretty dry, I admit it. But there you have it. And so how do we actually experience groundlessness is, of course, a much uh, juicier uh, subject. Um, and um, in, in the Tibetan tradition, we have a number of ways of talking about it. Um, not uncommonly, uh, we use sort of the lives of various teachers, sort of, and what happened to them, as as and and as as do uh, the many Zen stories of sudden enlightenment. They're sort of people are primed, and then they experience sort of the dropping away of the fabrication of their entire lives, and that's the experience of of groundlessness that we think of um, as sudden enlightenment. There's a story about Marpa. Um, in Tibetan Buddhism that uh, is commonly 
brought up at talks like this. So here it comes. Uh, Marpa was an 11th century Tibetan uh, teacher and a uh, farmer. And, uh, and he also uh, was a brewer of, of beer. Not that that's particularly important in this particular story, but, and he was married. And he made three big journeys to, to India. And uh, if you've taken a long road trip ever, it's not the same as walking from Tibet to India. And it's particularly not the same as walking to Tibet to India three times. And, um, and he did that uh, in order to receive teachings and to come back and sort of continue uh, teaching. And his, he was a translator. So he translated um, a lot of texts from the Hindi and the Sanskrit uh, into Tibetan. And he had a number of students and, and in one of the major schools of Tibetan Buddhism, the Kagyu school, he's one of the direct lineage people. Anyway, uh, Marpa had an eldest son by the name of Dharma Dodi. And uh, Tibet, um, Tibet is a horse culture, and uh, it's kind of all about horses. I mean, the part that isn't about yaks, and the part that isn't about drinking butter tea, and the part that isn't about Gesor, though Gesor is a lot about yaks and butter tea and horses, is about horses. And uh, particularly um, in the part of Tibet where Marpa lived, um, horses uh, were a very big deal. Um, a very big deal. In, in, in the first Gaysar book that I was involved with, um, Gaysar's future wife has a poem that lasts about 25 pages that describes all of the good qualities of an excellent horse. If you think about a few thousand lines about a horse, that, that's a culture that has a lot to do about horses. Anyway, horses were a big deal. And every year there was a giant horse race. And uh, Dharma Dodi was 18 which was the first year that you could qualify uh, to go to a horse race. But Marpa really didn't think that he was ready. And Dag Mima, who was Marpa's wife, really didn't think that he was ready. And so both Dag Mima and Marpa basically rag on Dharma Dodi and say, you, whatever you do, you can't go to the horse race. You can't even watch it. Anyway, you can probably see where this story is going. So Dharma Dodi uh, goes and enters the horse race and he's doing pretty well. In fact, uh, the horse race is about three quarters of the way um, through and then a horse uh, hits a rock and Dharma Dodi uh, is thrown through the horse and uh, his foot uh, slips uh, through um, the stirrup and he's uh, dragged and his brains are bashed on rocks and he dies. And um, and Marpa is, is basically beside himself. He completely falls apart. And, uh, and Dagmima is like beside herself. And this goes on for days and days and weeks and weeks. And, and by this time, Marpa is a pretty famous fellow. And he has hundreds of students. And he has been preaching to them about equanimity and uh, maintaining um, shamatha peacefulness for years and how 
uh, bad things happen, but you have to remain calm no matter what happens. And so finally, after a couple of weeks, the students, you know how students are, they get a little fed up with, with, with his basically dragging around, moping and unable to talk. And, and uh, finally they say, you know, we've been here for 15 years and every, every Friday you tell us we don't exist. Nothing that happens has any consequence and we need to maintain equanimity. And you're just, you're just a heap. You're not even a heap. You're not even a, anything. And what about all that teaching about groundlessness? What about that? And finally, Margaret uh, turns to his students and he's still, you know, tears are going down and he's still kind of distraught and beside himself. And says, you know, those were the intellectual groundlessness. This, 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 you can't quite get it out. This is the real thing. This is where it all falls apart. And, um, and, and so groundlessness has that quality of, it doesn't just fall apart, but there's, there's, no, there's no place to build it back up. Usually when we sort of see through a little bit of construct of our life or we see, you know, we thought we were going to get this job and we didn't. We thought this relationship was going to last forever and it didn't. We thought this child that we had would love us forever and she didn't. And we thought this parent would, would be with us when we graduated from high school, but she isn't. All of these things that, that are the things that fall apart there's something that comes back and we build ourselves back up and we sort of remember and we go on and, and it's sort of a partial groundlessness. But the real groundlessness is when, when not just the foundation is broken, but there's no place, there's no place to sort of resettle. When I was in Seattle uh, recently, uh, Seattle sort of, I mean, for a town that's sort of so, I don't know what it is exactly, um, built up. Uh, every time a house gets sold, or not every time, a lot of times when a house gets sold, they um, tear it down, you know, because the people in Seattle have so much money that if you're going to buy a house, you might as well tear the old house down. Not that that doesn't happen in California, but it really seems to happen in Seattle. And... Uh, near where uh, my daughter lives, there was this one block where two houses were bought and torn down, both within a couple of weeks. And, uh, and you could sort of see that uh, in one house, they used the old foundation and sort of rebuilt on the model of, of the footprint of the house that was there previously. And the other house, they, they, they tore the foundation out, which is a lot more work, and, uh, and started to rebuild sort of from the earth, from the actual earth up. And, uh, and so that's the groundlessness piece. It's when, when you don't use anything uh, that m you might've thought was left. When you allow the whole, the whole structure um, to fall apart, and 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 the the egolessness piece is that that you don't you don't try, you don't you don't you don't look into the eyes of your friends and lovers to sort of say to try to remember who you were, 
or who you were in their eyes, or uh, you know, when you answer the phone and somebody says, hello, David, you're saying, oh yeah, David, I remember him. You know, or you wait for, you know, Mike Newhall to introduce you so you can remember who you were. You just sort of let the whole thing drop. And so, so the idea of groundlessness and the idea of practice is to, to maintain um, equanimity uh, within the space where you're no longer uh, filling it up uh, with your own perception and concepts. And so, so uh, groundlessness not uh, only has uh, tremendous um, intellectual foundation within the canon of, of all of the Buddhist schools from the very earliest uh, to the most advanced, um, but also it, it shares this uh, experience of, of groundlessness where the sense of self actually does dissolve. And the practices are about um, maintaining uh, some semblance of, of the land without the landfill, uh, the foundation without the steps, the uh, just the space itself. Sometimes the mind is like space itself. And then usually right after we say that, we start to think, well, what is it about space? You know, how is my mind like space? And then we can, we can fill up a whole half an hour using different metaphors about how your mind is like space, but that's not how space is. Space <clears throat> is fundamentally without ground, just like groundlessness. So sometimes we talk about naked awareness, which is basically awareness without mental concepts. And so we can think for a long time about what it is, is what it is to have just awareness without mental concepts and constructs. And so eventually we get maybe tired of thinking about it and we just sort of rest in that open space. So uh, groundlessness is that open space. So that's about all I have for today. Um, if there would be any questions or comments or really anything, recipes, pre-masks, the mask business is catching up, I hear, with the Clorox business. And uh, that would be great. So you can unmute yourselves and chat it up. Um, I, I had a question. Sure. So, uh, so this is about um, essentially about groundlessness or not having a self. And my question was that um, from birth to death, uh, from the moment we are born and to the moment we die, we have this body. And um, how can we have a body and not have a self at the same time? Um, well, that's a good question. Uh, <clears throat> actually, in, 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 um, in the West, we would say the soul is separate from the body. Socrates spent a fair amount of ink talking about that. 
um, in the East, we would say, uh, find us the soul, and we'll talk about it. And um, I'm the East, particularly, but I always sort of like that figuration better because I, I don't know what I don't know what the soul is. The Buddha, you know, he had 14 things he refused to talk about. You know, one one was this: is there a life after this life? He said, I don't know. I can't. I don't know. Who knows? You know. But one of the other things he refused to talk about is, is whether there's a soul or not a soul. He said there wasn't an Atman. Um, but it was one of those unanswerable questions. I think it's still an unanswerable question. You know, Tibetans, of course, that's, here's, here's a stereotype. Tibetan Buddhists, of course, they're kind of hung up on reincarnation. You might have heard about that. Um, um, that comes, so it comes up a lot. And we do kinds of, you know, there's all sorts of practices about, you know, transmuting or transferring consciousness at the time of death, which have become quite popular in the time of COVID, I have to say. And, uh, and, but there's, there's a whole canons of that. And, uh, but there's a contrary view, which is, is that that's really not of a tremendous amount of importance. That uh, we, we, we are alive and, um, and then we die. And uh, one of those moments of groundlessness, of course, is when we die. I hear that's groundless. It says that lots of people seem to think that. Um, and there's other experience of groundlessness uh, during our lives when things just sort of fall apart, like we talked about. Um, but the question of soul and, and of reincarnation, um, I, 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 I don't know the answer. And I, I, I don't particularly find it um, useful in my practice. Yeah, I, I don't understand how can there be groundlessness, true groundlessness, as long as we have a body. Uh-huh. Well, because our body is the ground. Right. Well, you have your body, but if everything that you thought about your body, I mean, what, what one of the moments of, of groundlessness during life is, is uh, said to be uh, when you find out you have a mortal illness and you're going to be dead like sometime like 6 months and then all those things that you've been planning to do like in 7 months they just go away and uh and a tremendous amount of your structure falls apart even though you still have a body uh people who have panic attacks uh whether they're driving i get panic attacks at heights and uh and things start to fall away from me on the Tampa Bay Bridge. And by the time I'm over the bridge, I'm thinking, boy, I'm glad I'm not driving because I would have just gone over the bridge and gotten it over with. And, uh, and I can feel those things falling away. Um, it's possible, uh, and it's said that at the time of birth, there's a falling away also. And uh, in the Tibetan tradition it said that at the time of orgasm, there's a falling away and a loss of ground. So there is within our, within our life, uh, these times that come up and things fall away. So that the body part is probably not 
and that, you know, not that it isn't what grounds you here. You can't point to uh, a part of your body and say, well, this is my mind. This is my heart. This is what I think. This is how I feel. This is why I love you. We can point to a body and say, this is why I hate you. You know, the body is, I mean, it's, it's a useful thing to have, but I don't think it helps in explaining the notion of soul very much. Uh, David? Yeah. 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 Um, just to just to add to what you said, uh, besides besides the assumption of a body, um, I've heard it said that we commonly have what's called a body policy, which is a not the actual experience of a body, but the idea of being embodied and the idea of uh, a kind of conceptual nexus of of where we are in time and space and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really good. Trunka used to call it, the, or other people also called it the psychosomatic body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's sort of, sort of nebulous sort of thing. Like, you know, most of us still think we're 16 or 17 years old in our minds. But as far as I can see, most of us are not. Or many of us are not. But, but if you think about who you are when you thinking about yourself, you're probably slightly different than you actually are. And yeah. always have that. Yeah. Because when you were 16, you probably thought you were 30. <laughs> and when you're 75, you think you're 14. Yeah, like that. <laughs> Heading back down. I've, I've heard it, uh, I've heard Colvin Chino Roshi say, uh, that the the gate uh, gate the translation of the end of the heart sutra gate gate usually it's translated as gone 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 beyond and so on he translated it once as kind of mirrors what you said he translated it as falling apart falling apart completely falling apart so be it right. Right. And it kind of confirms what you're talking about groundlessness yeah. And the idea that keeps popping into my mind is the idea of zero. I was always taught like, oh, the the number zero was discovered by, um, why am I blanking on the name? uh, Yes, (laughs) but really nothing is zero. Mm-hmm. So, it's an idea that we've long had, and we're going to continue to long have. Thank you. Yes, Pam. Uh, thank you for the talk. I really enjoyed it. And I wondered if you would talk a little bit about um, maybe the liberative aspect of groundlessness, the story about Marpa. I, I understand, but sometimes we have these glimpses where it's liberating and there's nothing to hold on to, but it is liberating. Right. Yeah. Well, there's lots of stories like that. 
um, where where people are holding on to something and uh, usually a teacher liberates them. Mar Marpa, the famous story about Marpa's uh, teacher, Naropa, um, comes to mind. And uh, Naropa was a great scholar and then he became a great tantric practitioner and then he found his teacher who's name was Talopa, who was a, a procurer for a prostitute and an eater of fish innards. And, and um, other than that, he was a fairly straightforward fellow. And uh, he puts uh, Naropa through, uh, I think it's 12 horrible torments, like he throws him off roofs and all his bones break. And he's put in a fire and he's eaten by maggots and, you know, the usual sort of tantric display. And... Uh, Eventually, when, when Naropa is ready, he uh, slaps him with his sandal, and uh, Naropa is liberated on the spot. Um, I've always thought that those stories really had to do and, and, uh, with preparation. I thought that these were stories of a gradual path, where Naropa had been prepared and prepared and prepared, and was just on the cusp and just on the edge, and finally Talopa to do the one thing that would push him over uh, into a state of true groundlessness. And, uh, and so I think many of the stories are like that, but I always have tried to focus on the preparation piece of it, what it was that got Naropa ready. Uh, he had an experience with an old hag who asked him whether or not he understood the sense of the words and of, of basically of various Buddhist texts. And he said, uh, I understand the words. And the hag said, oh, that's great. And then he said, I understand the sense also. And then she just started crying and pulling her hair out because she knew perfectly well he had no idea what the sense was. But it's all, it's all about, I think it's all about preparation. And so that's why we practice. So, thank you. If there's no more questions, I think I'd like to thank you all so much for your attention. I hope this was okay. And I wish you a wonderful, wonderful pandemic. Thank you, David. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, how about continuing? Yeah. Uh, so the... Uh, Folks here at Jacoji, uh, the Tenzo's prepared a lunch for us. And so many of us will step out of the Zendo now to go uh, have some lunch. I want to thank the speaker and thank everyone for attending. And uh, also want to remind everyone that all of our programs are freely offered. And if you are moved to give us some kind of contribution, um, we would greatly appreciate it. Please go to the website and look for the con contribute button on any of the pages. Uh, thank you again, David Shapiro, and thanks, Durban, for being here. Um, so people out in Zoomland, if you'd like to continue um, staying online, we'll, we'll have a, a, a continuing discussion. So please stay if you like, go if you like, and thanks again for being here. Thank you.
Karen, this is Hogan. I have something I'd like to say to you. Mm -hmm. Um. The, the inquiry about the, the body and, and how, how can one be fully groundless when this body thing is so obvious and so um, ever present in, in the awareness. Uh, that's, that's a really good question and something that uh, I notice as well and, and have found, I have found that a, a couple of um, approaches to examining that question that I, I'd like to share with you. One approach, yeah, yeah, one approach is to, um, it's along the lines of expanding my idea of what my body is. And I imagine that all of the things that pass through my body day to day, the food, the air, if I consider that's part of my body also, that it's inseparable from what this is, that helps me somewhat. I, if I also consider that the ground under me right now is in fact part of the, the skeleton that holds this body in a place in space, it's not a separate thing, that there's always something pushing on some part of me and it's not, not me. If I consider just, just, for, just for the sake of expanding my thought of what my body is or is, and if I consider that that is an inseparable part of my body, that's helpful to me also. So I invite you to play with things like that, um, to play with what, what, what are the boundaries of this thing that I've been taught to think of as my body and, and play with those boundaries. It's, um, it's been helpful to me in, in uh, and hopefully uh, I'm hoping it's helpful to you also. And, and in what way has it been helpful? I think it's expanded my feeling of, um, it's expanded my feeling and connection to the rest of things. It's helped to undo um, these cultural stories I've been, that I, you know, that I internalized about what I am is contained by the boundaries of my skin. Um, I, I think it's been helpful to me to consider that that's not true. If, if, if I 
another experiment I do is, well, what would happen if I stopped passing anything through this, this particular construct in the world? If I stopped passing air through me or food through me or water through me, it's true that I might persist for a little while and have some, some thoughts and sensations, but the amount of time that that little glimmer would last is vanishingly small compared to compared to almost anything. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. And one of the follow-up questions I have is, um, why, would I, why would I begin to think this way? Like what inspires me to question the cultural stories or what inspires me to question the fact that uh, whatever is me is not in this enclosed space, which is my body. Like what is, what is the motive force for me to question it in the first place? Well, I, I, I can tell you what it has been for me. I can't tell you what it is for you. But what I'm finding is that it allows me to be more patient and kind towards myself, you know, my, my small self, you know, as it tries to figure out ways to be less impatient and less judgmental of its own life story and of the perceived actions of people around me, either in my immediate immediate around me or even the stories that come from afar of people making decisions in the government or things of that nature. What motivates me is I'm finding as I shift my ideas about what the extent of my body is, I become more kind and more patient towards these this onslaught of things that are coming at me all the time. So that's my motivation. And uh, one, one last question, and, and sorry, Mark. Um, <laughs> um, like one of the irrefutable facts um, is that my body is separate from other bodies. Or like, then it like kind of like delves into the definition of separateness. But, but if we take the standard, like the widely accepted definition of separateness, so my, my body is separate from other bodies. And in that sense, myself, because, because in some way I am my body, I, I cannot be, my, I can be more than my body, but I am still my body in, in a basic way, which is again, I think irrefutable. So the fact, so as long as my body is separate from other bodies, that means I am separate from other things. And as long as my body is, that means I am. And so that's where, that's where like, that's where the question is that how can I be not there as long as my body is, because my body is is something and I am my body in a very real way. So how can I not be as long as my body is? You, you see my question? I think I feel the spirit of it. And as I mirror that spirit inside me, I feel myself contracting a little bit. And, um, and, and I think that, uh, 
let me step sideways on you and stop talking about just the bodies. So be patient because I'm stepping sideways. But I'd offer that this analysis that, that you're undergoing, you know, this analysis, this logical progression that you just presented to me, this is something that only exists within the cultural being that you are part of. It only exists within linguistic constructs, logical constructs that are part of something that you could not have as an individual body possibly have constructed in your lifetime. It's a sideways step, but this is something, it's something I need to do sometimes when I'm mired in, in my thoughts as a way to go, don't take the thoughts too seriously and maybe just drop into what does it feel like to spin in the thoughts of how do I justify that this is a separate body or to let go of that and say, maybe that's not true. Maybe, maybe what I am seeing and feeling right now is the entire universe having an experience of this particular set of circumstances. Thank you. Uh, that, that gives me a new arena to, um, to approach this from. Wonderful. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Hogan. Um, <clears throat> Hogan? Yeah, hi. Hi, how you doing? Um, I guess one of the questions that came up and during the talk when I was listening and uh, is he's talking about groundlessness and you know, awareness without mental concepts and the making that have any sense of continuity or continuedness or in the sense that all things are impermanence in a sense that even that awareness seems to have its time, its birth, and its death. Um, but maybe the, the residue keeps you going. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure what I'm asking. Because <laughs> uh, you have, the, we, you know, we have these experiences and they, and they're, they're not what they were at the time. They are memories. They are um, things that uh, there's a residue, there's a residual quality, but is that all? I mean, we, they're encouraging to continue, continue a practice or, a, um, yeah, so I don't know what I'm asking. <laughs> it's actually very clear what you're asking to me. What's that? <laughs> It's actually very clear what you just asked me. But, uh, yeah, I have the same question. Sometimes I don't like, feel I, like I understand. Understood as having an experience of groundlessness and then recreating ground from there again. David Shapiro was talking in a sense of uh, the way I, I felt what he was talking could be wrong, but what sense that I got in my body when he was talking was something very uh, fierce and true, and you could say destructive to our sense of ourself. 
he was talking about guarding the house foundation from the foundation. So it's very dangerous because <laughs> I'm not qualified to talk about it, so I should shut up. But he, was, <laughs> he wasn't talking about just uh, groundlessness in Zen, as I understand it, has to do with emptiness in Tibetan Buddhism. And emptiness has multiple, I could be way off, I'm just putting it up here, and you know, m m emptiness has multiple uh, Connors intellectual again, right? Because if you're not talking intellectually, you wouldn't speak. So emptiness has multiple um, facets. One facet is non-separation, interconnectedness with everything. That's one facet of emptiness. Another facet of emptiness which is related to this facet is the sense of, is, is, the, is the experience of no self. So the way no self is generally explained, as I understand it, is no self is understanding that there's no separate self. But what David Shapiro was expounding was in these discontinuous, continuous points in our life, like you're told you have terminal cancer, like you're told you're going to get executed tomorrow, like someone is holding a gun in your temple. This isn't, you know, like your mind completely stops in, this, in these things, you know. And then next second, maybe your body is filled with terror, complete terror. And I don't know you know, um, I, I'll just stop there. I'll just stop there because I, I don't know beyond that. Um, but I will also say that that's why in Soto Zen, I have a sense that it's constantly emphasized practice after enlightenment. So people can have glimpses of this no self, of disappearing. All these things can happen, but if we hang on to it, we're creating ground from it again, from the groundlessness. So it's like something like um, constantly returning to zero, whatever zero is that she said, zero doesn't exist. So I have no clue. So anyway, I thought you were asking about creating ground again from after the groundlessness. I think Tyson wanted to say something a while ago also. Tyson, you're on mute. Yeah. Un unmute. Yeah. Who to who? Thank you. Um, I was just thinking about identity, you know, uh, kind of at the heart of oceans. <coughs> and kind of the, the uniforms of identity are grievances. And I think perhaps again, like you're saying, Kavi, just as a just as a I, idea to play with, the Buddha said that what what he offered was uh, about suffering and the relieving of suffering. And so I think perhaps what at the very simplest level that I understand it 
it's about identity. It's about releasing identity, um, recognizing that it is the uniform of grievance. And the multiple identities, which, as you know, are being kind of celebrated and uh, urged to increase right now. Um, you know, that, that would be something to kind of look at to see, does, does this increasing focus on self, um, does that actually lead to a reduction of your suffering? You know, that's inherent in our life in dukkha. Or is the other way of selflessness you know, of um, experiencing shunyata at its core through our, through our practice uh, and the kind of basic um, emptiness that, that's translated as to try to put into words, whether that is actually a, a more accurate um, lens in which to reduce the suffering of others with skillfulness, being able to see things more as they truly are, as things truly are, as others truly are, and um, without that notion of my own needs in defense of a self, of what is the best for me. You would say what we have today I think is a surplus of self, selfishness and, and very little selflessness, very little concern for how we might relieve the suffering of others all over and through that ourselves. And I, you know, I was thinking about happiness and how so much of the focus now is on happiness as a goal. And I wonder if that might be one of the kind of misguided uh, intentions. You know, I, I hear people say, the only thing I want my children is to be happy. I just want them to be happy. And I think, no, that's not what you that's not the thing, the only thing or the most important thing that you want your children to be is happy. What if they're happy killers or happy white separatists or, or happy uh, domestic violence? I, I, I mean, happiness is a byproduct of a life well lived, if you're lucky. You know, that's, that's a very different way of looking at it from the idea of, I really need to make sure myself, you know, is honored and protected. So beautiful, Tyson. That's beautiful. Identity. So I, 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 I that's actually very beautiful what you said. It's a, uh, but uh, can I can I say in one sentence what I understood? Try to say it in one sentence from understood what you, what you said is. Um, this is another approach to con constantly going towards groundlessness is to let go of our 
sense of our identity repeatedly in every situation as much as we can and when we do that you know uh the the effect whether it's a <laughs> so-called shinyata experience or not i shouldn't say so-called whether it's a shinyata experience or not is actually a shinyata experience when we let go of our sense of identity the relative in Zen parlance is the absolute. That's what it, I said much more than a sentence, I'm sorry, but that's what I understood from. Is that is that sort of what you were trying to get across to us or you can correct? You're on mute, Kaiser. You're on mute. Yeah, I, I had a couple of things to say about that, uh, Mark. Um, um, I had a Two comments and a question. Um, the first comment was like, I, I think, I think that, um, but I believe, I believe that uh, shunyata emptiness uh, might be a real thing, or it is a real thing, and or I, I do believe that. I think, uh, or not completely. I'm like divided on that. That it is a real thing. But setting it as a goal or wanting it is, could be a trap. Uh, and it, it could be a very dangerous trap. Um, that's just one, that's, that's something I've realized. And, and uh, it, it's just like a very tricky thing to want it and, and also not, not want it at the same time. So it's, it's a tricky thing to balance. The second comment, uh, I had was that on suffering, what the Buddha said and on suffering. And I think I read it somewhere or heard it from somebody that um, like Dukha, Dukh, the Pali or the Sanskrit word, uh, better translate to discontentment, which, which in my own experience has been more truer than suffering. Like I have undergone suffering and I've seen people undergo suffering. But I think the real constant is the discontentment that... Um, I or people I see are never really satisfied. We're never really satisfied. We never really reach. We never really arrive. Um, so, so, so maybe, uh, maybe discontentment is more closer to dukkha than suffering. Uh, that was my second comment. And my question was: You began with saying that uh, uh, the uniform that identity wears, or the uniform of the self our grievances, our grievances. So could you say more? Like where, uh, could you say more? Do you think that's the only thing? Are all the uniform grievances or there could be other uniforms as well? I would like to hear from the others. I'd like to hear from the other people who haven't spoken actually on on on, on anything. I, I, I didn't mean to take up a big spot of, of, of this, but um, so I, I don't know if I, if you, if it's okay, I, I would love to hear from, I would love to hear from Gary and others and Nico and is that okay? Nico, if you're talking, you're on mute. Nico doesn't talk. <laughs> 
I think I would see them as uh, a lot of, you know, in terms of suffering and discontentment. I think they're, I sort of see them as a continuum, you know, all, which, and the classification of those, they're, it's almost like you're parsing things, not artificially, but you're parsing things into, um, into art. yeah, I'm, I'm going to say artificially. And that suffering is a, for me at least, is this generic concept of balance. <clears throat> so there's joy, there's bliss, there's suffering, there's emptiness. And to strive towards any of them in some ways, I think is antithetical to what we, what the practice is, since the practice is really, in my novice mind, about not clinging or seeking anything. They're all, they're all false states. There is no true reality other than that which really is at some ground state that I think is so, so, you know, somewhat unknowable. So, you know, most of us don't suffer in the sense of extreme suffering. Some do, some don't at various times. But discontentment, unhappiness, suffering, joy, ecstasy, eroticism, <coughs> they're all... Uh, you know, definitions and distractions from uh, a state of what I guess would be an, accept an acceptance of all as uh, equal. Equal. You know, um, I want to use the word equal pose because it sounds cool, but I don't think that's the right usage. I was also thinking about back during the talk when he was talking about, um, you know, the individual states of mind and... Um, you know, as my personal pet PV or, or pet bugaboo as a neuroscientist is that, um, you know, states of mind represent these different agencies, as I like to call them again. And so uh, I think the integration of all of these different minds lead to a more stable and coherent and uh, pervasive you, I guess. Uh, you know, and I think all of these pursuits, and I'm sitting here, uh, as I'm listening, I go, God, you know, it's so easy to get sidetracked or wrapped up into all this, and instead of just letting it kind of turn over and roll over in your mind, you know, and I thought that was really what we, that was one of our practice techniques was to, you know, something when you're in Zazen, something pops up, you don't fight it or beat it down, you just kind of look at, examine it, and go, oh, isn't it, you know, here it is, and it should wash away. And I think that that applies to almost everything in our experience, and out of that emerges the clarity and perception of the real world. Thank you. I, in my humble opinion. Thank you. I just want to add one thing, Karin, uh, because part of what you said, she gets something. Actually, your question, your questions, and especially today's question, is very beautiful. Um, honest to, to me and uh, in the tradition of Buddha, being especially that you're Indian, I think Buddha asked all those questions also. And I can see, because I'm not Indian, so I can, I, I have read original, not original, sorry, I've read older, some of the older Buddha's teachings, a little bit, tiny amount. And his way of looking at things, kind of, I can see the lineage, you know, across thousands of years with the, you know, 
the uh, logical the logical approach of uh, India, you know. Um, but I, the other thing that I want to say is that I didn't say I didn't say emptiness is not real. I didn't also say it's not real. Uh, emptiness is also empty of itself. But that is something that <laughs> logic, logic, logic cannot uh, 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 in a sense, all of these things are, are uh, uh, you know, I, I come from like a, more like a, from a poetry, like culture, Sufi culture, love culture, compassion culture. So my brain is not nimble like this. So I can't stand on the ground of logic and debate with the Indian logician. But I feel there's a place beyond logic. Maybe logic can take you to the edge of that. But at some point, and I, I haven't been there. I don't want to. I don't want to put on any airs here. But my faith is that logic can take you to that closer and closer. But there is a leap beyond that, that logic cannot, cannot take us home, so to speak. And I had a sense that um, uh, the speaker, David Shapiro, when he's talking about groundlessness, either you crash to the to state of groundlessness, not many people leap, I don't leap, right? Or you take in there, but it's like a rubble. There is no logic in groundlessness. There is no sense of Self, there is no sense of Humpty Dumpty is not coming back together again in groundlessness. So that's my that's my feeling, but I could be completely wrong. We're just sharing our, uh, you know. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for that, Kave. And it kind of like what you said uh, regarding emptiness is empty is is very similar to uh, the point Hogan made earlier. Is that if you're a fish in the water and you've been there all your life. Uh, because you've always been in water, so all the. Logic... I say that again. I couldn't hear that point. You cut up. If you are a fish in the water, and it is the water that is the only thing you've ever seen, then you don't know what it's like. It's like to be not in water. Yeah. So yeah. Kind of the point that Hogan made. Yeah. yeah. How logic is is coming from the same things that I'm. Like, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, yeah. For me, like faith and and surrender help help. Like because I will not know, I will not know the answer. I know I will not know the answer. Actually, I said last week. Covencino said in it's in chapter fourteen. I misquoted, but he said something like about himself. Covencino is like the Dharma master of this, this temple, the original founder of this temple and he said because of the limit of my body and my mind I know that I cannot come to the edge of truth I said the edge of reality he didn't say reality he said to the edge of truth so if I my mind is very limited but I am more I can understand that in my in my being more than there is a place that everything becomes clear and I see clarity leading to in clarity. Then I see like layers, 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 endless layers. 
you know. But in, in, any, anyway, I talk too much. I'm sorry. I just wanted to share what I feel. And uh, I'm not, you know, I don't know Dharma that well to talk about. I just, my feeling of it. Um, I had something I'd like to add. Uh, Gary, I really appreciated, I think near the end of your contribution, you, you said something that I heard as to um, an encouragement to integrate various states of mind, um, to not reject nor desire them, but to just simply integrate them, to allow them to uh, come and go and simultaneously be part of our being. And that connected strongly with, um, for me, with something that uh, Taizan said earlier, um, something along the lines of um, to be careful about our identity being defined by a particular list of grievances. And I was reminded that, um, I was reminded of a part of my development that wasn't that I, I carried, I didn't carry a, a list of grievances with me so much as for many years I carried as almost a defensive shield my list of, my list of accomplishments, my list of attributes, my list of the, the places I had studied and the, um, the recognition I had been given and the, the, uh, the teams that I had been part of, and I carried this with me, this, this um, wasn't grievances, but it's the same thing. It was still me clinging to a particular identity of this is what Hogan is. This is what Hogan can bring is this curriculum vitae rather than just integrate that is part of what I am, you know, keeping, keeping a, uh, a little list of my past experiences, my past connections, but not, not relying on that too heavily, realizing that I actually was carrying it like a list of grievances the same way someone might carry a list of, oh, I was abused this way, I was traumatized this way, I was exposed this, I, I had this parallel thing. I had this advantage, I had this privilege, I had this blah, 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 blah. And noticing myself doing that and setting it aside has been extremely liberating. Um, it's allowed me to not be too strongly identified with my particular set of circumstances and conditions and more strongly identify with what's happening around me right in this moment. And again, it's a matter of integrating these various aspects of how my conditioned being tries to cope with what I'm seeing and feeling and smelling and hearing. Um, just integrate all of them and not take them too seriously, not take any of it too seriously. Because it's very serious business. You can't take it too seriously, right? <laughs> It's beautiful. It's so nice to Hogan you hung around. It's so nice to hear you, see you. Yeah. Thank you, Hogan. Yeah, thank Can you. I ask uh, Keith or Nancy or Randy, do you, do you have anything that you might want to share 
with us? Not that you have to, but I just want to make sure you feel. It is connecting to audio. So Um, I, I I think I think the question I had when I when I said something earlier was uh, and maybe made the question see what <laughs> what do we do with the awareness <laughs> what do we do with this what do we do if we have uh, you know, as we, it's, it, it, to me, you can't, ha- it, it's nothing to hang on to. It's sort of, you know, you have these awarenesses or these, you know, these seeing who, how you, and you just keep, keep going. So I don't know. I mean, I mean, uh, maybe that's part of me that still wants uh, <laughs> my cake and eat it too. I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, it's uh, you know, I love you know these things on Sunday are great because um, you get a lot of stuff you'd never get in books. <laughs> it's much more interesting. <laughs> so I, I I don't know what to say. Yeah. So it's. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder where the, that statement comes from. I always always been puzzled, puzzled. Have my cake and eat it too. But where does that come from? But anyway, that's that's well, the Yeah, I don't know where it came from. Probably out of the kitchen. You know, the <laughs> mother told some daughter or something. <laughs> I don't. You know, I'm, I'm not sure what author came up with that, but. Yeah. Uh, I don't know the meaning. The meaning is a uh, yeah. What is the meaning? Yeah. You want it both ways. You want. Yeah, I think it's like you have a birthday cake, but then you have to share it with others. You just. Oh, okay, okay. I eat. I have my cake and eat the whole thing. I see what you mean. Okay. Yeah, you That's... you want it both ways. You yeah, want yeah. it. You want to. Okay. You want to eat it and get rid of it, but no, I want to keep this. I want my. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Okay. That's a, okay. 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 Thanks. But uh, this, this that's not so. how life is. <laughs> So, Keith, Keith shows he's connecting to audio. Maybe he has trouble connecting to audio. I'm not sure if he can send the text. It shows connecting to audio. I'm not sure. Uh, I want to thank you guys. Uh, yeah. yeah, I got to take off too. Yeah, thank you. Good to see you guys. Yeah, good yeah. to see you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, thanks, Keith and Nancy for being here also. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jikoji.org.